In this episode of 2000 Books, Cal Newport, who is a computer scientist, teaches us three strategies to produce more work at higher quality while living a fuller, richer life. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. Cal Newport is an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University and someone who relentlessly produces large volumes of very high quality work. Other than being a full-time computer science professor, he has already written five amazing books that are completely unrelated to the field of computer science. So I definitely feel that he is someone who can teach us entrepreneurs a lot about productivity. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Cal, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Great. Um, so we're talking about deep work today. What is deep work? Like, how did you, what happened? What, what brought you to this journey? What, what brought you to write deep work? Well, deep work is a specific type of work activity among all the different types of work activities you can do. And the way I define it is that it's when you're focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. And my, my claim is that this particular type of work is like a killer app in the knowledge economy. It's incredibly powerful and valuable. Uh, so I'm trying to spread the word that this tier one skill, if you learn how to do this and do a lot of this, uh, you can have huge acceleration in your career. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's so important in today's day and age, given where we are with the distraction, with so much distraction that's all around us. So um, really important idea. Now, let's, let's talk about why, I, I just started the discussion, but why is deep work really required in today's economy, in today's, or it was always required, but why has it become so urgent now? What's, what's going on? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to point out that this is a change, that if you, if you go back 100 years ago, right, uh, deep work was actually valuable only for a very small fraction of the economy. There's a very small number of people, maybe some scientists and professional thinkers and writers for which deep work actually helped their career. But for the vast majority of people in the worldwide economy who are doing mainly manual or rote jobs, the ability to perform deep work didn't matter. So a big argument I'm making is that shifted. And as we've moved increasingly towards a knowledge economy, deep work is becoming much more universally valuable. Uh, so that basically for almost any non-entry level knowledge worker, if you are really good at focusing intensely on work and you're really good about protecting and scheduling that time, it will make you better at your job. You will do better. Uh, so, But you're right. I have to support that claim. That's a claim, but I mean, we have to argue why it's true. And there, there are a couple of reasons. I'll give you one right now. Um, if you can perform deep work, you are able to actually learn complicated things quickly. In fact, to learn complicated things quickly almost by definition, if you look at the psychology or neuroscience of it, almost by definition, you have to be in a state of deep work. So those who are very good at deep work can pick up complex new skills and idea quickly, which we see a near consensus among economists these days that in an increasingly competitive knowledge economy, the ability to keep up with ever-changing complex ideas and systems is becoming crucial. So deep work is the tool you need to actually accomplish that goal. 
Right. And one of the things you talk about, which I believe is one of the key reasons why you need to engage in deep work, is the idea that myelination, uh, the fact that we need myelination in order to act in order to actually be able to learn fast in order to do things fast rather than spread ourselves thin and not be able to get any myelination done can you explain the whole idea of myelination and how it all works out yeah this is a, an interesting advance in neuroscience that we now actually know what's happening at the level of neurons when you're trying to learn a new complicated task and so what's actually happening is when you when you're doing deep work on a new task so you're you're focusing very intensely on the new activity in the absence of other types of distractions, what's happening in your brain is that the uh, neural circuit relevant to this new skill or idea is able to fire repeatedly in near isolation because you're focusing on it really intensely and you have no distractions, there's not a lot of noise. So you're firing this circuit cleanly again and again. Now what actually happens in the brain is this triggers a certain type of cell to begin laying a sheath of a protein material called myelin around the neuron cell body. And this is essentially a, uh, an insulator. So you, as these myelin, myelin sheaths get laid around the cell's body of the circuits, it's like you're adding insulation, which then allows those circuits to fire faster and more easily going forward. So that's actually the neuronal equivalent of what it means to learn something. So we know from just the way these cells in the brains actually work that if you're not focusing on something very intensely without distraction, you're not going to get the myelin sheets laid down and you're not going to learn it. So if you're kind of trying to learn something, but you're also checking Facebook and you jump to your inbox every 15 minutes and then you give it another five or 10 minutes at the level of the neurons, you're really not going to be able to master this task very quickly, which puts you at a big disadvantage or flip it the other way. If you're one of the few who does deep work and can pick up these skills quickly, you're at a huge advantage in the current knowledge economy. Mm -hmm. So if you are distracted and if you're doing multitasking and you're checking Facebook and Twitter and all those things while you're trying to do meaningful work, you're never getting to the threshold that's required to activate this process. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, who knows this already, of course, is athletes, musicians, chess players, fields where people have a lot of embodied knowledge about how you pick up new skills and improve. So you're never going to see, you know, a top athlete in training or a top chess player, top musician sort of playing their violin while also looking at their phone out of the corner of their eye because they know they're not going to get better. We don't yet have uh, such embodied knowledge in the world of knowledge work. We're, we're not as good at understanding practice and improvement, but these same principles apply. And again, the point I'm going to keep hammering is that it's a big opportunity. You know, so it's it's like being uh, a professional basketball player before people figured out about, you know, jump shots and how to do conditioning, right? You have these huge advantages if you're the only one doing it. I think that's what's going on here with knowledge work. Uh, if you're one of the few to, to leverage the skill of deep work, it's just going to give you this big competitive advantage over everyone else who's not yet so familiar with the importance of it. Got it. So this is, this is really great because it clarifies why we need to uh, get into deep work. Another thing that really struck out, uh, that's, that really uh, stuck out to me was the idea that there is something called attention residue and uh, that kind of challenges us, that kind of pulls us back. Well, would you talk, us, talk to us about that? I think this is a, a, a key point. So we, we have the first advantage of deep work is it helps you learn things quicker. The second advantage of deep work is that it helps you produce more output and the output you produce is going to be of higher quality. And a key reason for this is a very important effect known as attention residue. Now, what attention residue tells us is that 
Um, if you're focusing on a particular target and then you switch your attention to another target, there is a residue left in your brain from that original target that you were looking at. And that residue can take 10, 20, up to 30 minutes to clear out of your head. While that residue is present, you are performing at a cognitively reduced capacity. So you're, you're just not able to, to fire on all mental cylinders. You still have uh, a residue from the original target sort of gunking up the works, taking some of your attention, making it a little bit harder to focus. So when you're in a state of attention residue, you're just not producing your best work and you're producing stuff at a much lower rate of productivity. So if you're in a state of deep work, by contrast, remember that one of the core attributes of deep work is that you work for a long time without distraction. Well, what that means is you don't switch your attention to something else and back again when you're in a deep work session. So you allow all of this residue to clear out. And once it's all cleared out, you're able to get more work done and at a higher level quality per hour actually invested. Now, I think this is really important in part because we've had this, this evolution in the way knowledge workers think about productivity. Back in the, the late 1990s, people were doing actual multitasking. So they would have, you know, an inbox window open at the same time as something else, and they would be talking on the phone. All right, that was like the late 90s. Then we had research come along, among other things, the late Clifford Nass at Stanford did all these studies and said, we, we can't, multitasking's a myth. We're not able to do it. It just makes you worse at everything. So really, I think in the last decade, people have moved away from multitasking. People say, I don't multitask. I don't keep my inbox open while I'm working. I, I don't keep my web browser open. I don't try to talk on the phone and work at the same time. But what people are doing instead is what I call a bunch of just checks. So they're mainly working on the primary task. Let's say they're trying to write something hard or, or program something. They're mainly working on the task. But every 10 or 15 minutes, they do a quick just check. Let me just see if something came in important in my email inbox. Okay, nothing I need to deal with. Let me come back. Well, I'm a little bit bored. Let me just check Facebook real quick to see if there's something interesting there. And then let me come back. And it feels like this should be fine because you're not multitasking. You're just taking a glance at other things every once in a while. But attention residue theory tells us that it's disastrous for your productivity. Because each just check you do to an inbox or Facebook or a browser tab gives you a thick, fresh slathering of attention residue. And so what happens is, is the way that a lot of knowledge workers are working today, where you're mainly doing one thing but doing just checks every 10 or 15 minutes, keeps them in a constant state of reduced cognitive capacity, which means they're, they're not producing their smartest thoughts and they're producing a fraction of their, their possible output. So if you instead really do deep work, long periods of time with zero just checks, zero distractions, where you're really focusing hard, it can seem almost like a superpower at first. You just produce stuff at such a faster rate and of such higher quality that it can even baffle people. They're wondering, I don't understand how you do this. Where are you finding the time to get it done? Uh, so I think there's one of the more exciting advantages of deep work. It's like, uh, it's like you're taking some sort of neurotropic drug that's making you into a super concentrator, but really all you're doing is re removing the handicap that's affecting most of your peers. Mm -hmm. And I can vouch for what you just said, because what happened today was um, I work with Pomodoro timer. So 30 minutes off and then I take a five minute break and then back to 30 minutes, on, 30 minutes on and then a five minute break and again with 30 minutes on. However, in those five minutes, I happened to check my Facebook status on which there was a heated political discussion going on right now. And I got involved in that. And that totally, totally, totally screwed up the, the next one hour of my productive work because I kept on going back to that. How dare that person say that? How come that person said that? And that was attention ready residue really killing everything I had. 
Uh, yeah, I think people are very familiar with it. And email inboxes are actually like a mechanism that's designed to create the maximum attention residue in the shortest amount of time. Because when you look at an email inbox, you're almost certainly going to see something that requires your attention, but that you can't really give your attention to at the moment. You're going to see a thing from your boss or a colleague. You know you're going to have to respond to them a little bit later that day, but you don't really have time to do it at the moment. And that's killer. That's that's as bad as seeing a, a heated political discussion because uh, we all have this experience of writing emails in our head. I'm sure this is very familiar where you're, you're walking, you're in the shower, and you find yourself like writing a response to an email completely mundane, right? But our mind, when it knows like, ah, I have to communicate with this person, I have to reply to them, it's fixated. What am I going to say? Even if it's boring, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? And it just really gunks up the work. So uh, inboxes, I think in particular, are killer for attention residue because five seconds glance is all you need to see five core messages that you know you have to respond. And that just hijacks your brain for, for such a long time. Yeah, so true. Um, now let's let's talk about probably the meta thinking behind why deep work is really important, which is the idea that what we focus, like what we put our attention to, is what we really become. Um, I think that's what uh, you also argue in the book. So so tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we you know we've just done two sort of economic advantages of deep work that you you learn things quickly and you just produce much better stuff at a much faster rate. But you know, when I was doing research on the topic, I came across what you were just talking about there, which is, I think, more of a philosophical advantage of deep work, which is that when you build a working life around deep work, which is what I'm advocating, and to be clear, I'm, I'm advocating a relatively radical change. I'm not talking about be a little bit less distracted, just don't check your email first thing in the morning. I'm talking about a pretty radical change in your working life where Deep work is your core activity, and you spend hours at it every day. You practice it. You take it very seriously. In addition to the economic benefits of this deep work lifestyle, there's these philosophical benefits in that if your day is filled with a lot of deep work, the day will be more meaningful. The day will feel more satisfying. People whose careers are built around deep work like their work a lot better. And what you just mentioned is, is kind of a big reason behind it is that our mind sort of constructs its understanding of its world based on what you pay attention to. And so if you're constantly paying attention to a lot of small things and trivial things and minutiae and what's on Twitter and Facebook and email and constant communication, the, the sense of the world your mind creates is that it's, it's very frenetic and it's very stressful and that there's all these social mind traps that you're, you're triggering that's making people upset and that you just see your life as, as stressful and busy I mean, think about anyone you know, if you say now, hey, how are you doing? They say, oh, busy. <laughs> because their mind has constructed this, this understanding of their, of their world. It's like it's frenetic, it's busy, it's stressful. If you spend lots of your time just focused on a small number of things that are valuable, you're creating things that are really valuable. Instead, the, the understanding of the world that your mind creates is like, well, the world is one in which you know, I apply my skills to create things that are valuable, in which craftsmanship matters, in which I'm... I'm I'm proud of what I do. And this type of craft-focused, output-focused, less frenetic type world is, is an image of the world that's a lot more fulfilling and meaningful and a lot less stressful. So you talk to a deep worker, they might be incredibly productive, incredibly effective, but if you say, how are you? They're unlikely to say busy. <laughs> they'll, say, they'll say, oh, I'm doing pretty well. You know, uh, Yeah, I, let me tell you something that I, I've been working on that I'm pretty proud of. It's just like a, a different type of worldview. And you know, I, I talked about... Um, 
people don't realize that the sort of low base level of anxiety that is self-imposed when you spend your, your life constantly jumping back and forth between things. And I like to tell the story that when I was doing the first month of promotion around this book, it was a month that, that drew me back from my normal, very carefully calibrated deep work lifestyle. It drew me back into a lifestyle where I was doing a lot more communication and a lot more being on the, the internet and jumping around just because there's a lot of frenetic activity that, that surrounds a book launch. And I felt it almost immediately, almost immediately my, my background level of anxiety like jumped up five levels. And to me, I noticed that immediately because it's usually not there, but it, it really got me thinking. I think for a lot of people, a lot of knowledge workers in particular, that background level of anxiety is just taken as, well, this is just normal. This is just what it feels like to sort of be sort of alive in a world of work. And we don't even realize that it's, it's self-imposed. So this is sort of the big philosophical advantage of deep work is that it makes your life feel more meaningful. It makes your background anxiety lower. It, it makes you more satisfied with life. And I think that's as important as the economic benefits. Absolutely. And uh, just to talk about how as entrepreneurs, this becomes such a mess because we have so many things coming in and going out on a daily basis. And the more you get into this addiction to do more rather than say, this is really important, this is really key, and this is what I must focus on, and I can let the other things go, and I can still be extremely productive and become who I intend to become. Yeah, I mean, no one ever changed the world by having a fast email response time. <laughs> the stuff that matters is where you have skills that you're applying at your highest level. That's the stuff that moves the needle, that's the stuff that makes an impact. The other stuff is some of it's necessary, but it's to be seen with a little bit of skepticism. How can I minimize the impact of sort of shallow logistical work, uh, arbitrary communication? How can I minimize the impact so that I have as much energy and time as possible for the deep stuff that actually moves the needle? Great. Now let's let's really talk about how to implement deep work because because we've been talking about why it's important, why it's really beneficial to people, but. How can entrepreneurs, how can these ambitious entrepreneurs really put the pedal to the metal and get this working in their lives? Yeah, well, I, I think there's, there's three big ideas uh, if you want to become a deep worker. I'll mention the three ideas at a high level and then we can dive in uh, as, seems, as seems useful. But the, the, really the three big ideas around how people uh, can make deep work a priority is, you know, the first idea is that deep work is an ability that has to be uh, trained and it's kind of key that you can't just assume that you know how to focus really intensely. It's just a matter of doing it. It's instead something you have to train or you won't be good at it. The second big idea is that deep work is an ability that must be supported. So again, you're, you're, you're unlikely to just stumble across some time during your week if you're a busy entrepreneur and say, hey, I have nothing to do and I'm in the mood to concentrate. That's not going to happen. So you actually have to go out of your way and how you approach your work and schedule your work and manage your time to make sure that deep work has a place of priority and then the final idea is that deep work is an ability that has to be fought for. So it's actually goes contrary to a lot of trends right now in the world of work and in society generally. So to make deep work a priority, you're going to be pushing back on some trends out there, like the importance of connectivity, the importance of social media, the importance of being busy. You're going to be pushing back on some pretty powerful trends out there in our cultures of work and society as a large. So you have to be ready for it and have some ideas for how you're going to navigate that successfully. So you have to deal with all three of those ideas if you're going to successfully transition into a, a deep work type lifestyle. 
Mm-hmm. And the first thing you said was training it. Is that right? Or do you yeah, that's it? right. Training. And how do we train it? Yeah, it's a good point. There's two types of training that are relevant. So again, the the underlying motivation here is that people often get this wrong. They think about deep work as a habit, like flossing, something they know how to do. They just need to try to do it more often. Like, yeah, I'm too distracted. I should probably put aside more time to focus. But the reality is, is the deep work is absolutely a trained skill, like playing the guitar. And it's something that if you haven't practiced systematically, you shouldn't expect to do it well. And I think the reason this point is important is that if you get this wrong, it's easy to get frustrated early on. So a lot of people will say, yeah, I should try to focus more. Maybe they set aside some time. I'm just going to concentrate. And it doesn't go well. It's uncomfortable. Their mind is rebelling. They, they can't really concentrate that hardly because they haven't practiced it yet. And they feel frustrated and they come away with the conclusion well, maybe I'm just not a deep work person. And then they and then they go back to what they're doing before. So when you understand, like, no, 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 you, you have to train it first, those type of experiences are not so frustrating because you say, well, of course, uh, I'm not that great at it. I haven't really done a lot of training, but I also have confidence that I could get better if I put in the time. So the two types of training that matters is uh, the first type is that you need to detox your brain from an addiction to novel stimuli. And this is often missed, but... Uh, if your brain has been trained that at the slightest hint of boredom, it's going to get a novel stimuli delivered through a web browser or your phone. Like, I'm a little bit bored. Bam, let me see my email. Let me see Facebook. Let me see Twitter. Let me see something that's new, novel, and interesting. If you've trained your brain to expect this at all times, it's not going to be able to work deeply when it comes time to work deeply. It just won't be able to tolerate the lack of novel stimuli when you're actually concentrating on the same thing for a long amount of time. So you actually have to detoxify your brain from that addiction if you're going to succeed at deep work. And so uh, I like to use the phrase, you need to embrace boredom. But essentially, every single day, you need to spend a lot of time where maybe your brain wants some novel stimuli and you just say no. And there's simple things you can do. But at home, for example, say this is the hour in which I'm going to go on the Internet and do Internet stuff. All the other hours, I'm not. And if I'm watching a show and there's a commercial, then I'm just going to be bored during the commercial. Or if I'm reading a book and I'm a little bit bored, then I'm just going to be bored. I'm not going to glance at my phone. Or if I'm in line at the bank, I'm just going to be in line at the bank. And I guess I'll just have to look around and think about things and I'm not going to pull out my phone. The second type of training is you actually can push your brain to concentrate deeper and deeper. And here, any sort of skilled activity that gives you immediate feedback about your effectiveness helps. So it could be like playing poker or bridge. Uh athletic endeavors that really require you to focus and understand where all the players are on the field in order to do it well. That's a great way to train it. Uh, there's various you know, computer games, books, anything that pushes your brain that have to focus really intensely. And if it doesn't, you get negative feedback is like doing cognitive calisthenics. So that's going to uh, deepen your level of, uh, of, of depth. So you have to do two things. You have to wean yourself off of an addiction to distraction and embrace boredom. And then two, you have to go out of your way to push yourself in the scenarios that pushes your brain, forces you to concentrate, and gives you clear feedback so that, it, that you, you maintain that concentration. So you're, you're increasing your capacity to, to be undistracted while also increasing your capacity to focus really intensely during those periods. So it's like uh, the latter, which is it's almost like gamification, or might I say it's like the flow experience. That's how we get it. Like that's kind of the defining characteristic of flow where we're we're forcing ourselves or pushing our comfort zone but at the same time we're getting feedback whether we're doing it well or not yeah the, the really the relevant uh science here would be deliberate practice so 
Um, if you study the science of deliberate practice, which is the, the best framework we have right now for understanding how people become elite level of performance, is the we know that they do something called deliberate practice, which is where you're you're pushing yourself past your comfort level while getting very specific feedback about, okay, you're doing the right thing here, you're not doing the right thing there. That's how people get good at things that are hard. And so any type of game or activity that allows you to do deliberate practice on something cognitive is like doing pull-ups for your brain. Mm-hmm. That's great. And the second thing you were saying, that's... Uh... So deep work is an ability that you have to support. Support. And how do you support it? Yeah, there, there's several things that can matter. I think uh, routines and rituals play a big role. Uh, so it can take a lot of willpower to wrench your attention away from interesting things and say, now I'm just going to focus really intensely on something for a long amount of time. So if you can have, for example, some sort of ritual that you always do before you start deep working, that can really help make that transition much easier. So I I talked, for example, um, in my book about how Charles Darwin, when he did his thinking every day on uh, the origin of species, the ideas behind the origins of species, he had a particular path that he would walk through the grounds of his estate in England. And that helped him switch into the mindset of, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to think deeply. He didn't have to wrench his attention away at just arbitrarily. He knew, oh, this walk is connected to, to deep work. Routines is about how do you actually schedule deep work into your life as a, as a professional? And I think uh, an important point here is that there's different ways, different philosophies of how you can schedule deep work. And it really depends on your personality and it depends on the type of job you have. So, you know, one, one successful philosophy for scheduling deep work is what I call the bimodal philosophy. And this is where you occasionally put aside a large amount of time, one, two, three days, where you do nothing but deep work, no email, no social media, no distraction during those periods. But then outside of those deep periods, you're just doing your sort of normal work, more shallow, not, not a lot of intense thinking. This is popular for, for some people. Bill Gates still does this with his Think Weeks a couple times a year. He puts aside a, a, a whole week where he does nothing but think deeply. Uh, I talk in the book about a, a professor named Adam Grant, who's also an author. Um, he wrote Give and Take, more recently, The Originals. Yeah, he does this for his academic work. He will put aside one, two to three days and uh, treat it like a vacation. So there's an out-of-office notification on his email. You know, I'm not around. They can't answer your email. He's unreachable during those periods, incredibly deep. But then outside of those periods, he's very accessible. Um, so that's one approach. But another philosophy, for example, is that people find it it's much more effective to do what I call the rhythmic philosophy, where, no, no, it's just a set time, the same days, the same time, every week in which you do your deep work. Like maybe Monday and Friday mornings from 8 to 11, you always do deep work every week without exception. And for some people, that's way more effective. Or every day you do it for the first hour and a half of the day, uh, you do deep work. And so that for other people, that's more that's more successful. This, uh, and the, the bigger point there is that you want to find a, a, a concrete philosophy. So you, you understand uh, this is how I schedule deep work. You don't leave it up to chance. You don't leave it up to whim. But keep in mind that the type of routine you use to get deep work into your schedule uh, can differ from what other people are doing. It really, you need to match a scheduling philosophy uh, to the specifics of your personality and your particular job demands. Right, right. And so it's different for all of us, all of us in different domains, different entrepreneurs uh, with different needs and different challenges. We're going to have to structure it differently, but we've got to find something that works for us rather than leave it to chance. 
That's right. You have to have a routine built around your deep work so it's not left to chance. And you want to have rituals surrounding the actual sessions so that you're minimizing the energy required to slip into that mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't depend on willpower to do any of these things for you. Yeah, then it's just going to be a crapshoot. You know, hey, some days you're in a good mood, you had a good lunch, you know, you, you didn't have anything that taxed and happened that morning, so you're successful at it. Another day, it's the opposite, you know, and, and you're not going to get anything done. So routines and rituals are at the core of, of really, you know, making deep work uh, a core part of your professional life, as opposed to just an activity you occasionally do. Hmm. Okay, that's great. Now, the third thing you said was we have to fight for it. What do we mean by that? Well, we recognize that the trends in business right now and the trends in society as a whole are often quite antagonistic towards deep work. So you look at the Facebook's new office. I mean, they're building the, the world's largest open office. Thousands of people in one massive room. That That is incredible incredibly harmful from the perspective of, I want to do deep work. Uh, the rise of office instant messaging. So now that it's not just, we want you to check your email pretty frequently, but instead, as soon as that Slack chat room goes bold, you better get in there and start responding. Incredibly antagonistic to the ability to do deep work. The rise of constant connectivity, the rise of using busyness as your main metric that you can show that you're productive and useful to the company, answering email chains right away, uh, always being the first to respond to something, responding late at night, that trend is terrible for deep work. The, the rise of meeting cultures, where let's have meetings, 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 like the first thing we want to do is have a meeting, let's just have a meeting, that's the way to do it, where people's whole days are just meetings. All of these things, which are really big right now in the world of work, make it hard to do deep work. So if you're trying to embrace a deep work lifestyle, you're going to be swimming upstream. And it's important to recognize that, that this is not going to be easy necessarily. And to really think, what strategies am I going to use to try to make this transformation, whether you are self-employed or you work in a large organization, what type of strategies can you use to help you push upstream without being too disruptive or without coming across as someone who is being, you know, egotistical or difficult. Uh, you have to think about these things. And there's some ideas that work really well here, but you have to think about these things. If you just dive into it, you're going to realize without expecting all this pushback, you're probably going to be surprised and overwhelmed by it. Yeah. It's a, it's a constant challenge for us entrepreneurs because there's a noise coming from the customer and there's noise coming from some of the vendor and there's so much stuff that's constantly grabbing or constantly seeking our attention that we feel almost this uh, urge to just say, let's do this right now. Let's answer that email. Let's answer that Facebook message or let's answer uh, the vendor who is screaming at us or whatever it is. It's really easy to fall into that trap. So so how do we fight it? What, what do we need to do to fight this? Right. Well, there's one big idea that I found to be useful. Uh, and that's where you, you ask yourself, what's the ratio of deep work hours to non-deep work hours that I ideally want to hit in the typical week? Now, if you're self-employed or an entrepreneur, you just have this conversation with yourself. If you're employed, if you have a boss or supervisor, you ask the question of them. Here's what deep work is. Here's what shallow work is. Both are important. For my job and my role and my skill level, what's the ratio of this deep work so that the hours where I'm producing a lot of value and using my skills and getting better to shallow work, which is, you know, when I'm doing the logistics and overhead that are necessary to run an organization, what's the ratio I want to hit? And then you measure and come back and discuss. So you measure for a while. And then if you're self-employed, you 
have this conversation with yourself. If you're not, you have this conversation with your supervisor. You come back and say, well, wait a second. The goal we had was, let's say, it should be 50-50. And yet I got maybe four hours of deep work this whole, this whole week. It was all meetings and email. It's like a, a 5% to 95% deep to shallow work ratio. Either we have to really seriously rethink my role in this organization, the value of my skills, the value of my time, or something has to change. We have to start making changes. And it's an ongoing dialogue and process. And what it allows you to do is in a positive way over time is start making the type of shifts necessary to, to your, your habits or to the company culture that allows and respects deep work as much as the other stuff. And there's, you know, people are often surprised about how much of the work culture or societal pressures that feel unavoidable, how much of them are arbitrary and how easily they can be changed or curtailed once there's actually an open conversation. And this is something, you know, there's, uh, I've talked about it before, I talked about it in the book, but there's this research by Leslie Perlow who was studying constant connectivity at the Boston Consulting Group. And she found that when the team started having these honest weekly meetings where they were discussing this stuff and discussing the, the pressures and their effectiveness and their deep work, is that some of the company culture that was seen to be immutable, in particular the company culture that said you had to answer any email within an hour at any time at night or day, that this turned out to be arbitrary. That no one had ever said that this is important for the company. No one had ever sat down and said, this is what it means to be successful. She discovered that it actually arose out of this sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop, and it had no connection to value. And once they actually started discussing this as a team, they very quickly came to the conclusion that this doesn't matter at all. And uh, we should not have any expectation of like email answering outside of this time. And if it's really whatever vital we can call, they're able to change the culture dramatically sort of overnight because they were actually talking about things. So having this goal and then measuring and discussing the results, I think leads to an evolution in your personal habits and organizational culture that can give deep work a place of priority, but it takes discussion and it takes clarity. This is great. So clarifying that goal will get us really started on the journey in some ways. Yeah. I mean, if you've hired someone and, and they're highly skilled and they tell you, I'm getting five hours out of 50 a week really doing deep work, it's embarrassing. Like, this is crazy. Like, why am I paying $150,000 a year for a top-notch developer if I, or manager if I have them just answering emails like a network router? Like, they're not using their skills at all. What a waste of money. And it's embarrassing, and it really leads to changes. You say, this is stupid. we got to change something. I, I can't have $150,000 a year uh, skilled laborer spending their whole day in meetings. Know? And so when you have these stark numbers laid out, it really does lead to changes. Yeah. So this is great, Calvin, because we've really gone through what deep work is, why it's important, and how we can really incorporate it in our lives. Now, I want to close with this with the story you talk about, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, because some, somehow people might get this feeling that deep work is really good if you just want to excel at one thing in life, if you just want to be Einstein and you want to discover the theory of relativity, maybe it works. But if you want to like do other things and you want to enjoy life, maybe it doesn't work. But Teddy Roosevelt's story tells us a different, like it paints a different picture, right? Yeah, it, it does paint a picture. I mean, so Teddy Roosevelt was famous, famous for his ability to work deeply, that he could get this blistering intensity of concentration turned on. And when he could turn it on, it allowed him to produce a massive amount of high quality work 
uh, for a really relatively limited amount of hours actually spent. So he's this great example of deep work being like a superpower. It's how, for example, he was able to get good grades in Harvard, even though he confined his studying to a very small number of hours per day, because he could do his studying with such intensity that in one hour he could get done what the typical semi-distracted undergrad might spend three to four hours to do. When he was in law school at Columbia, while also involved in political life after Harvard, he wrote what ended up being an incredibly influential book on naval strategy. It, it was about the Naval War of 1812, and he really got into all of the original documents and figured out the armaments and strategy and was a very influential book. He wrote this on the side while having a, a sort of a very busy life as a, as a law student and politician and, and member of social society. He could do it because of his deep work ability. When he worked on the book, he could turn on this skill and just produce incredibly high quality in an incredibly small amount of time. So he's a great example because he underscores what you just said. Deep work is no longer a sort of affectation of a very small number of people who all they do is think for a living. Deep work is not a skill that's just relevant to philosophers and professors and novelists. In the knowledge work economy, it really is the killer app. And to emphasize I'm not the only one saying it, that phrase, deep work is the killer app of the knowledge economy, is not mine. Actually, that, that phrase comes from The Economist. Uh, in an article from their January issue where they were, they were surveying ideas about deep work, including my book, among some others, that was actually the economist's phrase, that it's clear when you look at this research that it is true that deep work is the killer app of the knowledge economy. So if you have a non-entry level knowledge job, if you're doing something more than just administrative work, if you're doing something more than just moving messages around, if you make deep work a priority in your life, if you train it like you would train any other tier one skill, if you go out of your way and fight to make it at the center of your working life, you are just going to produce much more than your peers. You're going to produce at a much higher quality. You're going to pick up new skills and ideas very quickly. It's like a superpower. And your working life is going to seem more meaningful and satisfying. So I really can't think of a single other activity that you can do right now in our current economy that has so many powerful benefits. So that's why I'm so excited about this idea and this conclusion that any way you look at it, a deep life is a good life. Yes, deep life is a good life. And that's why to all my fellow ambitious entrepreneurs out there, I want to say you got to read this book. You got to learn from Cal what he's talking about. There's so much so much great stuff in there, Cal. Uh, how can people get hold of what you're teaching and anything else that you're... Well, on my website, calnewport.com, I have a blog where I've been writing about these ideas for years. So you can you can learn a lot there. You can sort of test out the ideas. I'll tell you, I'm otherwise relatively hard to, <laughs> to contact. I've never had a social media account on purpose, because though there's some value in that, the value of being able to do undistracted deep work is much more important to me. I also don't have a general purpose email address you can use. That is something that anyone can use, and I guarantee you to answer. So I am kind of hard to reach, but let that be a demonstration on, on you know the deep life. It turns out that even if you've never had a Facebook account or a Twitter account and you're hard to reach, you can still be professionally successful. You can still have friends. You can still know what's going on in the world. You can still sell books. Uh, so, so let my hard to reachness be a case study of a deep life actually is feasible even in today's connected world. This is great. Thank you very much, Cal. Thank you. Of course, all the links from the show today will be on the show notes page. There you can also download the summary and action guide of the book. So just head on over to 2000books.com and you will find everything right there.